We're starting today's episode with a playing of Zutong's Holding, which is based on Billy Joel's The Longest Time. You can find the song on YouTube and we'll link to it in the show notes. It was recorded back in 2013 and... For those of us who were there in 2013, it holds a special place in our hearts. and welcome to Noted 0.4.0. I'm Michael Goldstein, as always with my co-host Pierre Rochard. Today we have a very special guest with us, our friend Jimmy Song. Jimmy is a Bitcoin Core contributor, blogger at Bitcoin Tech Talk, host of Off Chain on YouTube, and runs the developer training seminar Programming Blockchain. Jimmy, how are you? I'm good. I, uh, so glad to be here, uh, you know, talking with you guys. I've uh, obviously seen you guys for a while since, you know, we go we go like way back to the OG days uh, 2013 or something. But yeah, it's uh, it's good to be here and talking about Bitcoin. So uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into Bitcoin? Well, so uh, I got into Bitcoin in 2011. I, I saw a story on Slashdot. If you don't know what that is, it 
it used to be a more popular nerdish news site. And, you know, being a programmer for the last 20 years or so, that was a site I used to frequent quite free, quite a lot. And 2011, I saw a story, um, I think it was like in January or something like that. It said Bitcoin has broken $1. I was like, what the heck is Bitcoin? And, um, and just to set up the context, I was working at a startup and uh, it was like phone calls that you could get from like animated characters and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I was like trying to figure out how to do all this stuff with asterisk and all that. But, uh, but the one thing that we noticed is like the payment part was such a pain, right? Like you have to register a pay- for a PayPal account and we wanted to charge like a dollar for like a phone call. Turned out that it was like, you know, PayPal ends up taking like 50 cents of it. So I, uh, so I was sort of primed to see uh, some sort of digital version of that that would be not based on the U- US dollar would be like. So I saw Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then I learned about the 21 million limit as I as I read more about it. And I was like, wow, I, I better go get some if there's only going to be 21 million. Um, like just instinctively, I, I, I don't think I would have phrased it at this, uh, this way at the time, but... I sort of instinctively knew this was sound money and I needed to get some if it was sound money or if it it even had a chance to be sound money. So that's how I sort of learned about it. Turned out that I couldn't buy any Bitcoins for PayPal. I Believe me, I tried. I couldn't find a place to go buy it with a credit card. And I ended up uh, not buying, which is probably one of the biggest regrets of my life. Just like $500 at that point would be worth like $4 million right now, $5 million right now. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I missed out. But I did. I did buy some later in that year when uh, you know it went up to like thirty uh, during the run up and stuff. So um, I did get in at least a little bit. Uh, but that's that's how I learned about Bitcoin. I, I didn't actually program in it, despite you know having a programming background and everything until two thousand thirteen, uh, when uh, you know at the time I just had my money in Mt. Gox, uh, all, all of the bitcoins. And uh, and some friends of mine told me, hey, you need to get your money out of Mt. Gox. So. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go do that. That Those are very good friends. Yes, yes. I'm very grateful. So I I, I was like, all right, well, so how do I do this? So I, I, I started to learn about setting up my own wallet. And uh, and I ended up downloading Armory, whom I would go work for later. Uh, and it was uh, kind of a pain in pain in the butt, right? Like it, it was a lot of a lot of work to go get that done. So like that sort of like started me down the rabbit hole of learning about the actual protocol and everything like that. Um, I ended up doing my first like coding job um, off of a post on jobs for Bitcoins on Reddit. It was uh, for the Colored Coins project. And uh, and this guy from the Ukraine hired me to contribute to an open source project, which which I was like, that's awesome. And uh, to this day, that's probably like the best per hour rate that I've ever gotten. Because uh, you know, like at the time, it was like 100 bucks a Bitcoin. And uh you know, I, I mean, I, I was charging like 50 or something and it was like, OK, I'm getting half of like that's right now. That's like, what, forty five hundred an hour. Right. Like it, insane. Right. Um, so that that that's how I got into it. I did a lot of, uh, you know, I learned like a ton of stuff working doing that. Um, I ended up uh, going to Monitas after that and and then Armory and then Paxos. And, you know, now I'm doing a bunch of other stuff as well. So, yeah, that's sort of my Bitcoin story. That's awesome. And you have uh, contributed to Bitcoin Core. Can you tell us a little bit about what your uh, contributions to the uh, the the Holy Core repo? <laughs> so mostly, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, at some point, like during uh, the past, uh, I don't know, I can't believe it's only been like eight months, but eight or nine months ago, 
you know, I, I started this blog and that's completely by accident, by the way. I, I, I wrote that blog post for Paxos, my employer, and, uh, and they rejected it because it was too Bitcoin focused. So I was like, uh, I, actually, I, I think I actually contacted you, Michael. I was like, do you want to publish this on the Nakamoto Institute website? And you're like, eh, I don't know if it'll last. So I was like, all right, what, what the hell do I do with this like long, long thing that I wrote? Ended up publishing it on my own, and uh, it kind of like got way more views than I thought. I thought it would be like a few hundred views, and that'd be it. It ended up getting like uh, you know five thousand views, and I was like, oh, okay, I think there's something here. So I started just sort of publishing, and somewhere along that blogging timeline, uh, I think a few months into it, I was like, okay, well, Bitcoin's getting more valuable. It, it makes logical sense for me to utilize my development time to go make Bitcoin stronger. Because if my investment thesis is correct and Bitcoin does become a, sort of the ultimate store of value, well, then my time spent strengthening it is totally like worthwhile. So I was like, OK, well, I, I, I'm, I'm a noob, right? I'm as far as Bitcoin core is concerned. So I, I, I looked at it and I was like, OK, well, my strongest language is Python. So and they have a lot of, uh, you know, functional tests in Python. So I started uh, writing more functional tests. That's actually how I, I ended up working with John Newberry quite a bit because uh, he he was rehauling uh, the entire thing at the time. So um, and I ended up like reviewing a lot of his changes and he reviewed a lot of my changes. And, uh, you know, he was like, hey, you want to work on this part? I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, we went back and forth and uh, we ended up doing a bunch of uh, unit tests I and mean, functional tests, mostly RPC tests. Did a little bit on the C++ side. There's like a couple of tests that I, I tried to strengthen by adding a few more cases and stuff like that. But yeah, um, I, I, it's, uh, it's nothing like crazy, like, you know, going into consensus code. It's just sort of like unit tests and functional tests and just sort of like making sense of it all and adding a, few, a little documentation here and there. It's, uh, you know, I've got like what? 16 commits or something like that. It's, a, it's, it's nothing, nothing crazy. So, uh, Jimmy, you mentioned the RPC interface. And I think that a lot of people out there don't quite understand that when they open up Bitcoin Core and they're just looking at what's called the QT interface, which is kind of the, the graphical user interface that people use the Bitcoin Core software through, uh, they don't realize that if they go and into the console, they can put in command line type things through what's called the RPC interface. Granted, they could do it programmatically as well, but this enables a lot of features inside of Bitcoin Core that you can't get to through the graphical user interface. So could you elaborate on kind of like what the scope of the RPC interface is compared to the GUI interface? Yeah, so um, if you think of Bitcoin Core, they, they purposely sort of split it, right? Like there's uh, the Bitcoin daemon and sort of the Bitcoin clients uh, and Bitcoin dash CLI is like uh, the command line interface. The wallet software would be like the graphical like client of some kind to the actual server. But the ser server so software is Bitcoin D and that's that sort of uh, connects to other nodes. Um, you can sort of query it using the RPC and, and things like that. And you can um, and a lot of the features are built into um, the daemon that you can't get on the graphical user interface. So, for example, you can't really do a lot of tra segwit transactions on on the GUI. Uh, actually, maybe you can now. I don't, I don't remember. But uh, but you you can't you can do it. It might be upcoming in zero point one six. Okay. Yeah. 
I, I would imagine because I haven't seen anything in the GUI. Mm-hmm. I've been, uh, I'm on, you know, 15.1. Yeah. So, I mean, even when I use the Bitcoin D wallet, I, I just use the command line because I don't like putting up the GUI. Um, you know, I, I, I'd rather control it that way. But yeah, it gives you sort of like lower level access. And that's uh, that's a very good thing. Um, and, you know, you can you could connect to it. Um, it's relatively fast. And, you know, especially if you want to, uh, you know, query the blockchain and, and do things of that nature, you it's it's useful to have that. And, you know, that this is the software that sort of uh, gives you sovereignty over your own node, right, or over over your own stuff. And that that's at least why I think it's important uh, to have one running. And that's, you know, I have one running in my house right now. Uh, there There's a node. I have the satellite behind me, um, which I'm still trying to set up, but I haven't gotten to because uh, I suck at hardware. But yeah, that, that's uh, that's something that um, that's important for users to know is that you can actually go into the guts and go as deep as you like, and they it's open source, so you can you can code against it if you have the ability to do so. Uh, with regards to uh, testing, you know, so you worked a little bit on tests and you were mentioning that there's unit tests and functional tests. And mm-hmm. uh, many of our listeners uh, probably have like a, you know, a technical understanding mm-hmm. of, of how Bitcoin works, but not all of them uh, might be programmers. And just hoping you could explain a little bit about sort of the, the mm-hmm. different scopes of, of tests that go into Bitcoin. Because um, as you said, you, you wrote the fantastic SegWit2x article based on uh, John Newbery's mm-hmm. Uh, tweet storm, but finding bugs mm-hmm. and, and killing them is, is crucial in Bitcoin. And the, the tests are, are just as important as the rest of the code. Mm. But you need to test from from all different angles. And I, so could you explain what all people have to uh, test for, like the different ways that people test Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. So um, unit tests are sort of like, um, at a very like zoomed in level, right? Like you, you have a particular function and you expect these inputs to create these outputs, something like that. And that's, uh, you know, there, there's a bunch of tests written like that and it gets compiled along with the Bitcoin daemon and client and everything else. Um, so you, you can run those, uh, you know, as C++, it'll, it'll tell you straight up whether or not all those tests pass. So that, that's at a very zoomed in level. It's, uh, I, I guess, what you would call more white box testing or, well, actually, no, I, I don't know if it's white box or black box. It's just, it's a, it's a unit test. It's a, you take a, a single unit of code and you run through a variety of data and make sure that it, it works the way you expect it. Then you have something like uh, the functional tests, which are just sort of testing it more and treating it a little bit more like a black box and saying, okay, here's here's the uh, input that we're going to give it as an RPC client, and here's what we expect given these inputs. And the, that, that whole framework is actually pretty clever. Uh, so it, it creates like a bunch of Bitcoin nodes, and it connects them all together and makes sure that like everything propagates properly. So if you create, if you mine a new block on node one, nodes two, three, four, and five, like they, they get it at the right time. And like, you know, if another block is found at the same time, like how that resolves and all that stuff. So it, it's all sort of there and you, you want to test for all of those cases. So, um, you know, figuring out like what, what the software should do, it's, uh, you oftentimes write a lot of these functional tests first in order to do that. And this is something that Johnson Lau actually uh, tweeted about the, you know, 2x bugs was, hey, they, they obviously wrote the tests after they wrote the code. 
And this is why they all pass is because they just like fudge the test until they pass. Um, and, you know, I mean, Jeff Garzik actually tweeted back at me after I, I posted that uh, article. He said, you missed this. And, you know, he, he pointed to like a bunch of tests. I, I had actually seen them before. And I, I actually thought, OK, well, this must be right because, you know, it, pa- it passes those tests. But then John Newberry came back and said, well, all of those are off by one, too. That's why they work. And so, uh, you know, part, part of... Uh, Johnson's point was, well, you, that's why you need to write those first, because otherwise you're just going to end up fudging them to make sure that they pass. And uh, and you're not going to catch a lot of these like errors that you might otherwise uh, have caught. So Right. That reminds me of uh, Nassim Taleb had a concept in one of his books of, of Wittgenstein's ruler. Um, there's this idea of like, is a ruler measuring the table or is the table measuring the ruler? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, likewise, here, was the code testing the test code or was the test code testing the real code. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, Procrustes bed or something like that. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it was uh, it, it was obviously something that the two X developers. I mean, really, I think it was Jeff Garzik and maybe a couple other people. You know, I I, I really wish they they his army of reviewers. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I, I wish there were more people that reviewed it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, a lot of people just didn't want to look at it, and it was open source, so you can go go look at it but at least I, I don't know like the timing on that is a little questionable i don't know when it became public or um you know how like it, that that whole like pull request was like thread crapped to hell right like it was just you know our like it was luke saying it's not two megabyte blocks segwit is already two megabyte blocks and you know all this other stuff and it, it just like the argument went on and on and on for like 200 comments and then he inserts this pull request and then like one person gets to see it. So it, it was, it was, it was not a great situation for that, uh, for good software to come out. Do you think this changes the equation going forward with regards to hard forks and the quality of the code that goes into them? I think more attention is going to be paid to the development process rather than just the politics of the situation. Yeah. I mean, um, the nice thing is that you already have a few hard forks that have more or less worked. And um, what seems to be happening now is people are just sort of copying that over and just adjusting it. And and it's sort of been proven. So like Bitcoin Gold, for example, they took uh, the Bitcoin Cash uh, strong replay protection code and they, they more or less copied it, changed a couple of parameters um, and, and utilized that um, to sign all their transactions, essentially. So that way they they will always have strong replay protection and I, I don't know if you remember like back in like 2013 2014 matt corallo had made this like all coin creation like website where you can just like fill in a few parameters was it coin gen was it that one yeah yeah coin gen that's what it was and uh and like somebody ended up you know creating a bunch of coins i, I imagine hard forks will be very similar in the future like there will be code that has been vetted through hard forks that have gone before, and people will just more or less fork the code from them, but fork the Bitcoin blockchain. It, you know, it'll more or less be plug and play at some point middle of next year, I think. And you'll see a ton of these forks, and you know, they they have a lot of value now. But you know, when I don't know how how it'll be when you have like two the two hundredth 
hard fork of Bitcoin coming like July of next year, are they going to be valued at all? I don't know. They all seem to already uh, jump on using the Bitcoin name. Mm -hmm. Today I saw there's the Bitcoin diamond. Well, mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how many variations of the term Bitcoin these creative <laughs> marketing geniuses will be able to come up with to try to confuse people. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's about confusion. It's just sort of like uh, saying we forked off of X. So Ethereum Classic was obviously from Ethereum and, and so on. The, the more interesting thing will be, will, will any of these actually innovate? And, uh, and we saw this in the altcoin market, right? Like initially, there were more or less clones with very little innovation. You know, they just changed a couple of parameters. But then later on, you got stuff like Bitcoin and Monero. You had Zcash. I, like those are actual, there's real innovation in those coins. So I imagine Harfworks will sort of go in that direction as well. You'll at the beginning, it'll be just sort of, okay, we'll ch change this parameter to a few minutes less or whatever. But, you know, the first one that comes in with confidential transactions, that might actually be interesting. First one that comes in with, um, you know, some sort of blockchainless mimble wimble thing or something like that, that would also be interesting. Somebody that comes out with side chains as part of it, that would also be interesting. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, there there are a lot of companies that would love to see some sort of ch side chains like RSK chief, chief among them, right? Like they would love to see drive chains on Bitcoin. But supposing that they get kind of tired of waiting, maybe they hard fork Bitcoin and go with Bitcoin side chains or something like that or Bitcoin drive chains. And then they, they have their own hard fork and, you know, then they can run their, you know, smart contract stuff off of it. I don't know. Um, but it, it, we tend to think of hard forks as like, a bad thing for Bitcoin, that's not necessarily the case. There's always sort of like a good and bad, and it could possibly sort of uh, add innovation to the space or at least, you know, force people to consider, hey, well, there's this other thing and I already have some coins there, so maybe I keep a couple. I don't know. That's ultimately, I think, where, where this is whole with the, where this is all going. Do you think that conflicts with Bitcoin being sound money, that we can create copies of it? And some have argued, it's been the investment thesis of some people that hard forks are inflationary and thus Bitcoin shouldn't have the value it has. Well, that would be true if you were actually printing more Bitcoin, but you're printing not Bitcoin, but Bitcoin X or Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold or Bitcoin Diamond or Bitcoin Silver or Bitcoin Cash Plus or Bitcoin Clash. Super Bitcoin Deluxe. Yeah, yeah. There's gonna there's so many Bitcoin 2M. Right? I, like these are just the ones I've heard of. Who knows how many more people are like you know working on right now? But yeah, you're you're not actually printing Bitcoin. So to me, the sound money thesis is still valid because you you have Bitcoin. It's still got a 21 million limit. You haven't increased it by one Satoshi. So, uh, you know, I mean, if you if you sell your, uh, you know, Bitcoin cash and get Bitcoin for it, it feels like inflation to you. But somebody else had to sell you that Bitcoin in order for that to have worked. So that's just the market working. And if you believe in Bitcoin and you bought some and I, I don't know, Bitcoin class, uh, Bitcoin cash was what? Like um, it was uh, August 1st uh, and, you know, Bitcoin was at 2700. If you managed to get Bitcoin for Bitcoin cash back then. And you you've done pretty well, right? Like you you've ridden. Uh, I mean, I guess if you kept it in Bitcoin Cash, you also did pretty well. But regardless, um, this the market's working. I'm I'm all for for that. One criticism I've heard is that a lot of early Bitcoiners have a disproportionate number of Bitcoins, and they have a certain view on mm -hmm. how. 
for example, scaling should happen. And so when there's a hard fork done that's a UTXO snapshot, essentially that gives them a disproportionate amount of power because then they can go on the exchanges and sell the coin that they disfavor. And so there's kind of a built-in conservatism to Bitcoin, which is undesirable for a new technology where we should be trying new things out. Well, is that, I, I, I'm not so sure that's true because uh, I think Bitcoin's already proven that it's a very good store of value. And uh, if you have a store of value, one of the properties you want out of it is durability or it's unchangeability. That's a very good property to have in a store of value, right? You don't you don't want gold to go. Part of the reason why gold's so good is because it doesn't deteriorate, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't, uh, you know, oxidize or rust away. And part of like Bitcoin's, uh, you know, property as store of value is you're 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 wanting it to stay the same. You don't necessarily want lots of changes. I mean, there can be changes, and you know, innovation may be a good thing, but. It's already kind of proven its its value as a store of value. And really for that to grow, you only need the network effect, not necessarily new features. So you just need to bring more people in, not necessarily say, okay, add this bell and whistle or whatever. It, it'd be kind of like, okay, they invented the automobile. Well, now we need to make it fly or something. Well, no, I mean, it's useful just, you know, uh, on the road. And if you make it fly, it might crash and, you know, do all this other stuff and make it less useful as a result. So, you know, I, I think it's already good at what it does. Uh, as far as sort of like a disproportionate influence, yeah, there nobody's really figured out a good way to distribute it any other way, right? This is the this is why I think in part why uh, hard forks have been so successful is that they figured out an actually relatively fair distribution system, which is to take a snapshot of the Bitcoin UTXO set. Any other distribution system, if the creators hold most of it, this is what Ripple did, then it's obviously unfair because they, they just take all of the money. If you sort of like randomly airdrop it, then it's only the people that hear about it. And, you know, then it's, it feels like kind of like communism done really badly or something like that. If you if you try to like give it away for some amount of work or something like people have tried all sorts of things in almost every altcoin to distribute their coin in some way so that, you know, people have some investment in it. And they haven't really found anything better than, you know, taking a Bitcoin snapshot and Bitcoin's sort of distribution is sort of the oldest and most successful people that own Bitcoin own it because they've been in it for a while or, you know, they, you know, put in a lot of money to get into it. So it's, you know, that that criticism is is assuming that there exists another distribution mechanism that's much better and no one's found it. If there was, then there, there, there would be an altcoin that would do it tomorrow. And unfortunately, uh, you know, not everyone values, uh, you know, a cryptocurrency the same way. So you need you need some pricing mechanism. And, you know, right now we kind of have that and distributing it to the current holders of Bitcoin, which is the most distributed cryptocurrency out there right now. That's that's not a bad way. And, um, and I think that's that's actually probably the way to go. I think uh, what's interesting about that is it shows us that Bitcoin was in many ways a very unique event in human history, like Bitcoin specifically, as opposed to just any any network, because Satoshi was able to come out with a completely blank slate and zero baggage whatsoever um, and present this thing and it was able to distribute as it were. But even if someone tried to recreate that same distribution method, there, there's still all kinds of questions about well 
you created it? What did you know about the network ahead of time? And of course, Satoshi, you know, had had control of the mining at, uh, at the beginning. And, you know, you could you could call that a, a pre-mine, so mm-hmm. to speak, but it was already known that the network was was existing. So that's not to say that someone can't come up with a better way. But yeah, I can see how a hard fork thus far is is probably the distribution method with the least baggage and no one will be able to recreate what Satoshi mm-hmm. was able to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately, the thing that people seem to be most concerned about or like what, what sort of riles a lot of people is that they don't really believe that the distribution currently is fair. And I'm not sure where they get that idea. Like where, where, uh, like, do they think that they're entitled to some amount of coin because they're alive or something? Like, you know, the people that have Bitcoin right now, they took some risks, they kept informed and they didn't sell through a lot of ups and downs and stuff. They, in a way, they kind of earned it, right? Like, and it's, it's this uh, mentality that, okay, well, I I deserve to have some of this wealth or something like that, that's kind of permeating culture that that leads them to think that the current distribution of Bitcoin is not fair. And I, I, I don't know if that's true, right? Like there, there are other distributions that we can make, but, you know, just giving everybody an equal amount, that's like the stupidest, most default way that people sort of think of as fair in distributing. But that's just not the case. I, I, I don't think that's fair at all. And I, I think uh, you ultimately end up with a lot of people that that don't value what they've been given. Yeah, don't value it and don't like end up like, yeah, it, it assumes like everyone is equal in knowledge and foresight and time preference and all this other stuff, which, uh, you know, like if you have prices um, that kind of gives everybody at least uh, a chance. And that's, I think, more like Fairness of op- like uh, as long as everyone has the same opportunity to go and get some, I think that's about the most you can expect. Like to distribute it in some socialist manner or something like that, I think is the wrong approach, and it's it's the wrong sense of fair. Or it's it's just uh, yeah, it, it it riles people's uh, sense of justice in some way, but I think it's the wrong sense of justice, at least as far as this stuff is concerned. Oh, it's humorous too how uh, you see, you know, the the price as as of recording. Uh, we've had almost a, a full day now of Bitcoin over nine thousand. Woohoo! <laughs> and uh, it's interesting and and humorous how as the price really you know goes up like this in, in a way that the mainstream picks up on. You get a round of people who get very upset about the inequality of Bitcoin hodlings and sort of what that means for the future inequality, and they they worry about mm-hmm. this. But where were they when, you know, Bitcoin was in 2015 when Bitcoin was down to $200 and we were like, buy the dip, buy the dip and encouraging everyone to do so. More people with lower economic statuses could have jumped in. Even even small amounts would have meant a lot more at the time. But no one no one thought about it then. They, they wait until after it's reached its success to... Uh, be upset that they did not take that risk like other people did. That's true. And I think the same even applies today. I think that they're complaining prematurely. We haven't reached, you know, what we theorize to be hyper-Bitcoinization. And thus, instead of complaining about it, there's definitely some actionable uh, tasks to be done with the caveat that we're talking about an indeterminate amount of time before hyper-Bitcoinization happens. So it could be in 20 years and the price might dip down to $5 a Bitcoin in the meantime. And so where will you be? Where will 
your temperament be that you think that you can earn these Bitcoins, buy them today and hold them to an unfathomable bottom uh, for some data of hyper-Bitcoinization? Like, I think that people have such strong hindsight bias that they think that, oh, well, if I had heard this specific thing, if someone had told me five years ago that Bitcoin would be at $9,000, of course I would have bought. It's like, no, of course you wouldn't have. You'd have told that person they're trying to scam you. Like they might have been trying to scam you, but it's it's the hindsight bias is strong on both sides, really. All the time people, you know, tell me, oh, I wish I would have bought then. And of course, I think we all feel that. I, I feel that all the time. You know, I, I wish I would have bought at, you know, back when I first heard about it in 2011, as opposed to, you know, later in 2012. But, uh, you know, what I usually tell people is that, you know, you buy when you're ready. So had you bought in this, this imagined past, you probably weren't actually ready for Bitcoin and you would have sold it just as we saw how many people buy how many Bitcoins back in, in 2011, uh, 2010 or whatever for, for their Silk Road purchases. And they just blew it all on weed or, or lost the hard drives or just didn't care about Bitcoin in some way uh, that they did not hold on for the future. That's not the same investing strategy as actually consciously buying for the long run. Uh, ha- having that regret is not even helpful in the mindset. We, you always got to be thinking forward. And right now, $9,000 is nothing. Hey, it's it's interesting because I, I, I see all this as sort of uh, some form of envy. And and you guys may, may have noticed like when people um, demand some sort of justice, it's usually some form of envy that's underneath it. Um, and certainly with this, uh, you know, when, when people are like, hey, it's not fair. You guys learned about it early. I didn't have the same chance, blah, blah, blah. And, you know. Uh, how come you guys get all the power? Well, it's because we're the entrepreneurs that took the risk, right? And uh, and and that envy uh, sort of presents itself as, hey, it's not fair. I see this in my kids all the time, right? It's like, oh, it's not fair, you know. And it's because they're envious of their sibling that got something else. Um, and you know, th- this happens even to Bitcoiners, right? Even earlier this year, like there were a lot of people that were like. Oh man, I, I I'm I'm only getting five times my money. My friend that invested in this other altcoin got fifty, and you know, like they're they're getting envious of other uh, other altcoiners, and you know, envy 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 kills. It, it it will like destroy your soul, like to to think that way and to you know imagine a past where you you would have gotten something because you know you you were informed of something and you know you ended up investing like this this is sort of like the hypothetical past that most people imagine is oh if i only heard it in 2011 i would have put $10,000 into it and i'd be like a multimillionaire and i I'd, I'd be all good now um, that's that's most likely first of all you likely would not have and second of all that's not actual reality the actual reality already happened and you can't you can't go back and try again. You know, this is why time... It's a nice story to tell yourself. Yeah, yeah. These, these are like, uh, you know, imagine time machine stories or whatever that people people desire. But in a way, it's just regret and opportunity missed. But, you know, you can't, you can't go backwards. So the only real way to change things going forward, if you do have envy, is to change your, you know, like go learn more so you're open to these opportunities and you can take advantage of them rather than you know, saying everything in the past was unfair, therefore I I deserve X, Y, and Z, like the, that's totally the entitlement mindset that will like just absolutely destroy your productivity and your soul and 
So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, sympathetic to this argument that the current distribution of Bitcoins is unfair or whatever. Um, it, you only have yourself to blame at this point. And if you, if you didn't know about it, I'm sorry, but I mean, you can get into it now and I'm pretty sure you're not going to regret it going forward. And for anyone who, you know, thinks you're just being uh, almost glib by saying, oh, you can uh, get into it now, uh, you yourself are offering services to help people, you know, truly get into Bitcoin. Uh, I thought we could talk some about uh, programming blockchain. Yeah. Um, which is a seminar. How many How many of the seminars have you done now? I've done three. Uh, I did one here in Austin. Uh, and I did one in LA and one in San Francisco. Um, uh, Michael, you, you came to the one in Austin, the first one I gave. I promise it's improved quite a bit since then. But yeah, basically it's, uh, it's two days of really intense, you know, learning uh, live in person. Uh, and the reason I'm doing this is because I, I saw this big gap. Every... Bitcoin company really wants to hire Bitcoin developers, but they can't find enough qualified people. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I've said this before, but, you know, I believe Bitcoin to be an anti-fragile thing, but it's anti-fragile not because the software code is so smart, but because there are really smart developers that are strengthening the network anytime there's a disordering event. And I, I believe that the more really good developers that we get into the system, the better it will be, the better store of value it'll be, and the higher the price will be. So, um, you know, in a way, this is a very selfish endeavor. I'm, I'm doing this so that my investment will go up. And, uh, and you know, Bitcoin's great like that. It, it aligns incentives so well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So two days, uh, you know, you, you get eight hours in a classroom with me each day. And I basically go from the very basics, uh, you know, starting with finite fields and elliptic curves and elliptic curve cryptography and encryption and, uh, you know, signatures and verification and transactions and blocks and uh, SPV and networking and all that stuff. All, all of that is covered in two days. Um, it's, it's roughly a semester's worth of information. And I'm not really even kidding about that. I'm, I'm, I'm currently talking to uh, a university about possibly teaching this as a course. But yeah, it's, it's about a semester's worth of information in two days. So it's, it's a fire hose of information. It's, it's going to be a lot to digest. But afterwards, you're going to be a lot more comfortable, um, you know, working with Bitcoin, all the, you know, bits and all, all of the bytes and all, all the different ways in which uh, you can manipulate it. And you uh, and we need people that know this stuff because a lot of these companies they don't they don't really have that many people that that know it at that level. So I mean, even even some core developers that I talked to when I when I showed them this stuff, they're like, "Wow, I didn't know that at this level." So so it's it's definitely worthwhile uh, if you uh, want to get into this. Uh, and you know, I I, I do want to point out it's it's an extremely lucrative field at this point. If you want to be a Bitcoin developer. Uh, there's a lot of companies hiring and they really, really want people. Um, granted, some of them are ICOs that have raised money or whatever, but there's a lot of other Bitcoin companies that want uh, blockchain developers too. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great place. I, I see it as a win for me, obviously, win for the students because they're improving their skills and hopefully making more money as a result. There's, it's a win for the company since they're getting developers. It's a win for the ecosystem because, uh, you know, the, the entire ecosystem gets stronger and more anti-fragile. But yeah, it's a, it's a two-day seminar. Um, you know, next one's in Austin. I think it's December 6th and 7th, which is about a week and a half from now. Or I, I don't know when you're going to release this podcast, but somewhere around there. 
Um, so, uh, and then after that is Charlotte, like January 16th and 17th, I think. Um, so yeah, uh, go on my website, programmingblockchain.com. I can, I can personally attest, uh, to the, the comfort level rising, uh, after, after being in this class, like you said, I got to, uh, join in on the first one, which was kind of almost like a, a, a test run that became more than a test run. Very fun two day event. I've, I've been in Bitcoin for five years now. And yeah, there's a lot of technical stuff that I realized that I, I did not know. Or even if I knew at a, a conceptual level, I didn't really know the, the nitty gritty of how, you know, how the mathematics is actually done. After the class, I was able to see, I'm able to see a bunch of hex code for a transaction and actually make sense of what I'm seeing. It's not, it's not merely random uh, numbers anymore. So all, all of that is really fantastic. Yeah, people, uh, I, I love how uh, somebody put it at that, at that thing. Uh, you know, they were like, yeah, it's like looking into the matrix. I can, I can finally see the woman in the red dress now. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's, uh, it's a lot of information, obviously, and you do get to learn a lot about, you know, how things are structured. And it, it really does get down into the very basic math level of you know modulo arithmetic and stuff like that so uh yeah if you're interested this uh you know uh, michael's part of uh part of like the growing group of former alumni that we have like a little telegram group and an email list and stuff like that i'm working on trying to uh, uh you know partner with companies so you know uh, whoever wants to can get interviews and things like that um you know after getting some certificate. Can you mention like what what kind of uh, students are you looking for? There's there there are certain requirements that you expect. Yeah, yeah. So um, you need to know some Python um, because we're gonna use Python three on Jupiter to do all of the teaching, um, and you know you need to be somewhat comfortable on command line at least to do like a Git pull or something like that and. Um, you know, I have instructions even for Windows now, so you can you can run it as long as you have a web browser with you can like sort of program Python directly in there. But yeah, uh, other than that, and you know, knowing some high school level math, most more or less, uh, and some programming uh, experience in Python, uh, you don't you don't really need that much more. I'll teach you everything else. Yeah, you'll you'll learn that that finite field is not actually a uh, daunting concept. <laughs> no, it's just. It's modulo. It's just modulo arithmetic. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it does sound like much more complicated than it is. And it's like once once you get into it, it's like, hey, I don't know. It's it's like anything else in my mind. Um, you know, I, I used to be really intimidated by hardware. Then I bought like a Raspberry Pi and started reading about it. It's like, oh, OK, it's just like electrical engineering. You know, there's a circuit here. It's like stuff I learned in physics or whatever. Um, it's, you know, it has one signal or another. It's uh, it's. It's not quite as difficult as you might think it is. It's uh, it's all at the very base layer, um, some form of math or physics or something like that. Great, and you actually have resources online as well, not just in-person courses. Where are you going with uh, Bitcoin Tech Talk? I know it's a website that's put out some great content that really explains technical issues that are approachable for technical people. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always looking for writers. If you can sort of explain technical things in a way that is easy to understand, or especially for non-technical people. Um, you know, I'm looking for writers. I, I mean, uh, me, John Newberry, and David Harding. I think uh, one of my former students, Michael Lerner, he, uh, he, he's posted on there. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's supposed to be sort of like a community-driven website. You know, we we publish maybe one article a week, something like that. Um, and you know, anyone is welcome to 
to try to contribute. It's uh, it's it's not as easy as you would think to uh, pump out a technical article. Those those tend to like you really really have to understand it before you can uh, write about it. Is what I've discovered. You can't just sort of fake knowledge. People can figure it out right away. So yeah, I, I, I've done a few articles there. Um, you know, John and David have as well. Uh, but yeah, that uh, the idea of that website is we'll just focus on the technical. We thought that there was just uh, way too much opinion and not enough fact in this space. And that's that's sort of like the goal of the website is to you know put out a lot of facts out there and let people judge on their own. You don't you don't need to have so many um, opinions and things. And that's I think what the communities found valuable about it. And that comes along with the newsletter, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I have a newsletter, uh, Bitcoin Tech Talk, and that's uh, you know you can you can subscribe to it at the bottom of most of my articles. There's a there's a link to it, but yeah, it's uh it's just it goes out three times a week. I I just it's mostly just for me, so I, I I keep up with the news, and I just put in stuff that I find interesting. You know, new paper here, new uh, you know new interesting statistics here. I try to again like keep it more fact based and less opinion. Here, here's some mempool statistics or some new library that can do X or here's a paper on, you know, some new mathematical construct that you can utilize to do something else or whatever. Th- those are the things that tend to be interesting to me. And uh, apparently to like, I don't know, 2,300 people that are subscribed to my la- mailing list. Yeah, I'd highly recommend subscribing. I've been impressed that there's that much news coming out that you've been able to put out an email so often that I open it and I generally click most of the links. So I'd say that in terms of a newsletter, that's pretty. That's a pretty high signal to noise ratio. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of it just comes through on my Twitter feed. Uh, and once in a while, I'll go to Hacker News and see if there's anything Bitcoin related there. But yeah, it just... Yeah, it's uh, it's just stuff you might have missed on your <laughs> Twitter feed because you know you you're not on there twenty four seven like I am, I guess. Um, but yeah, it it's interesting how much news there is about Bitcoin that just sort of gets missed, especially a lot of the technical stuff because people want to you know see fights between Roger and somebody. I don't know, like that that and that tends to. I know for my like uh, you know YouTube channel, for example, that those always get way more views than uh, than me explaining something technical. So, how do you think that we can, as a community, gain technical expertise, not just among developers but among users, so that they can make informed decisions about the software they run and the projects that they support? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, ideally, you learn how to code and like look at the open source software, right? Like that's that's the idea of open source software. It's open source. You can go look at it. If you're not looking at the source, it might as well be closed source as far as you're concerned. So, you know, I, I ideally you you would you would have enough people that can learn and do that, but obviously not everyone has the time or the ability or the desire to go and see those things and make sure that they're all legit. But, you know, if, if not, then, you know, start at least getting yourself technically familiar. Um, I would say like one of the things about Bitcoin is that it's it's very humbling. There's There's a ton of stuff there and it's very easy to think that you know a lot when you don't know very much. 
But once you know a little bit more, you realize just how vast the universe of this stuff is. And you, you start going, wow, I, I, I don't understand that part at all. I don't understand that part. And yeah, I mean, I know vaguely how it works, but I know how deep that rabbit hole goes, that, that sort of thing. So, you know, uh, you know, some humility, I think, is warranted and uh, encouraged uh, if you can manage. There's just way too many people, I think, that think they know more than they do. And I'm not talking just the technical part, but like economic and social stuff, you know, that a lot more people feel comfortable sort of uh, exerting expert knowledge or uh, saying that they have expert knowledge in those areas when in fact, we know very little about either of those things as well. And, and, and in fact, if you think about the social and economic aspects, I think that's where a lot of people think they're contributing, but they're honestly not because they don't really understand what's going on. Um, and that's, that's where we need just as much study as well. The technical is important, uh, but it's, it's one small part of the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. There's you know, there's a whole economic aspect of it, you know, the sound money aspect and, you know, having a lot of holders and how that affects things. It's a, it's a dynamic nonlinear system. And if you've studied uh, complexity at all, you know that those things are very, very, they have patterns, but they're very hard to figure out correlations and things like that. So, cause you know, it feeds back on itself and socially, you know, they're, this is, you know, you almost get into like political science or something and like social herds. And, uh, you know, we, I don't think we understand that at all. Um, and we, we have even less understanding about that than economics. And we have less understanding about that than, you know, the code. The code in, in many ways is the thing that we understand the best because, okay, well, it's there and it's deterministic. You know, the economics is completely nonlinear and the social is like, it's like a you know layer on top of that that's like enwrapped in culture and all these other things that we don't really understand very well. How would you describe the different cultures within Bitcoin? Because it seems as though with these new hard forks that we see different subcultures of Bitcoin essentially splintering off onto their own track. Yeah, I would say it's uh, it's kind of like the balkanization of Bitcoin at this point, right? Like uh, there there's uh, there. There are people that are just sort of saying, hey, this is my sovereign territory. And I, and, and I actually think that's good. That's There is a network effect uh, that gets diminished just a little bit when you have a bunch of people split off. But at the same time, I, I think there's something to be gained there, too, because each project can do their own thing um, and, and go with, uh, you know, whatever it is that they think is important and program against that. Uh, so, I mean, culturally, I, I, I see sort of, uh, it's weird because usually like when balkanization happens, they, they happen along like ethnic lines or something like that. In Bitcoin, it's happening along sort of like economic philosophy lines, which is very strange, but it kind of makes sense because it's kind of um, the money of the internet. So, you know, it's, it's not by geography, it's not by ethnicity, it's, it's by what you believe. So in a way, this balkanization is very pure, right? Like it's, it's by what you believe. There's no like people swept up that didn't want to be on that side. It's, it's just sort of, you know, whatever you believe you can go and be, be a part of that. It's, it's kind of borderless in that way. So in a, in a way, uh, you know, it, it causes people to, uh, to, um, hold more extreme views. And even within Bitcoin, I don't know if you saw the story about like bitcoin.org sort of moving uh, a little bit more away from core and 
I mean, there. I mean, we we might have more balkanizations to go. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin knots ends up hard forking at some point. I, I don't know, and you know, maybe maybe Luke Dash Jr. goes along with them. I it, it's it's one of those things where we don't know the future, and this is why I say like the social and economic aspects are even more poorly understood than than the technical. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to describe it really, other than that it, it seems to be along economic philosophy lines rather than anything else. Do you think that the consensus continues to fracture and that it's kind of, it, because on one hand we see a fracturing of loud individuals, let's say, within the ecosystem, but when we look at Bitcoin's dominance, it seems to be fluctuating within the same range as it has ever since Ethereum's ascendancy earlier this year. Yeah, um, I mean, again, we don't really understand economics that well. I don't, I don't know exactly why that's happening. I, I have suspect that like a lot of crypto is more about uh, you know, the monetization of developer time. That's, that's what it seems like to me. A lot of these, like when you have a new project, you have a lot of lot more developer time that goes into, uh, you know, the new hard fork or a new altcoin or whatever, and that's what ends up sort of having value. Because one of the things that people asked a while ago is why do altcoins have any value at all when they get created? And uh, part of it is because of the anticipation of future developer time that they're uh, they're expecting, and that's that's sort of what gives these things value. And th this is why Bitcoin cash has value. This is why Bitcoin gold has value and all these other forks will have value to some degree. But, you know, there, there's only so much development power. So and, you know, ob obviously not that many developers. So, you know, this will dilute at some point, but it does seem like there's something about developer time, um, economic incentives and, um, you know, uh, uh, the economics of cryptocurrency, if you will, are highly correlated with developer power and sort of economic consensus and social acceptance, something like that. Yeah. And along those lines, do you think that there are different motives for different developers? Like some want to work on Bitcoin because it's the biggest market cap and because it's the thing that matters the most. Then there's others who are like, well, I want to create something new so that I can maximize the amount of value that I extract from this. Yeah, uh, and that that seems to be the case. I mean, there's tons of. Uh, well, th this is the thing. A lot of the get rich quick developers they they went over to Ethereum and started doing ICOs, right? Much easier, lower cost of getting rich. Yeah, I was. Just, I mean, a lot of those guys are getting paid insane amounts to write like Solidity, and who knows how secure it is, but you know that's that's what they're doing. But, you know, the, the people that seem to have stayed in Bitcoin tend to be more about sound money, I think, uh, or at least that's what it seems like to me. Uh, the people that were more about medium of exchange, they seem to have gone off to maybe Bitcoin Cash. People that, you know, wanted to try their own or they, they wanted to try their hand at sort of improving Bitcoin, they seem to have gone to altcoins of some kind. Yeah, it, uh, motivations seem to vary, but they seem to be in some sort of range. Um, yeah, it's hard to say how that will change going forward, um, especially if there's like further splits, which I think we're all anticipating going forward. It's not, you know, it's not one big happy family, right? Like we, we've already split with uh, Bitcoin Cash uh, and there, there's, uh, there's probably a lot more of that to come. 
and we'll see how Bitcoin holds its value. It seems to be holding it pretty well, but who knows? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to like try to predict the future because I tend to be pretty bad at it. Despite having the talk of all these forks, you know, we're hitting all time highs today. 9,600 is what we're seeing. I'm sure that it will be a very different number by the time this recording hits your ears, either on the downside or the upside. Uh, either way, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate all of the insights that you brought to the table today. Michael, thank you for co-hosting. Jimmy, we hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully that we talk about some of the good things that have happened and not necessarily complete disasters or something like that. Absolutely. Looking forward to it.